All right, we're gonna, we are in Colossians, so make your way to Colossians chapter 3 is where we are this morning. And for our introduction, we want to sit in, um, you know, Paul is really boiling his encouragement, his teaching, his exhortation to the Colossians down to practical life. So you sit with Paul and what we know about Paul we have from testimony that comes out of his mouth and in different letters. We have Luke's testimony in regards to Paul's nature and his character, who he was before Jesus, right? Paul was, he's an educated young man. He was a religious young man. He identified himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. Um, When he compared himself to his culture, to the Jewish culture, he could line up his resume and his life with the best of the best, right? So when we sit with Paul in who he was before Jesus, that conversion that he had on the road to Damascus, and then we have his life story where he had 10 years roughly of isolation where we don't see him... Um, we don't have the testimony of what service looked like for him, what ministry looked like for him. Uh, we know that he spent a few years in Arabia when he visited the church in Jerusalem. The church didn't know what to do with him, so they sent him back to Tarsus. But we don't have any testimony of that period of his life, of what was going on while he was in, in Tarsus. But once he started his public ministry and where we're sitting in Colossians, he's been roughly 20 years in going from place to place proclaiming the gospel. And where he is as he's writing this letter, because of the gospel, because he's proclaimed who Jesus Christ is to Gentiles, he's found himself in shackles. And our understanding is this... uh, this house arrest that he is in is at the time that he's in Rome. There's, there's debates on whether he's in Caesarea or even in Ephesus, but it seems to line up that he'd be in Rome. So this is the early 60s, roughly 20 years of ministry uh, that he has been engaged in in the lives of other people. So do you think you learn anything about Jesus, about people who have rejected Jesus, about the lives of people who have received Jesus and even those who have received Jesus, all the conflict that we can still have in the body of Christ. Do you think Paul knows anything about that? Absolutely. You sit in, you know, here Paul is, you know, in this house arrest, shackled to a Roman guard. He's got brothers and sisters that are ministering to him there. And one of them is Epaphras, and Epaphras is from this community in Colossae, and he's telling Paul about his brothers and sisters and how they've responded to the gospel. And again, you have have the Holy Spirit stirring in Paul's heart to write a letter to them to encourage. Epaphras is explaining their faith. He's explaining their community. He's explaining some of the struggles and the fights and the conflicts that they have in the community. So as Paul is writing to them, he's expressing this great gratitude that they've responded to who Jesus Christ is. And as he is expressing gratitude and praying for them, he's reminding them exactly who it is that Jesus is, right? His nature, his character, his work, everything that he's done, he is elevating Jesus to the proper position in the conversation, in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. And as he's engaging this community, he's giving them warnings at the same time. So the warnings that we've already addressed are those external warnings. 
Here's some conversations that are on the outside that are attempting to take you away from Jesus. They're trying to rob from you, steal you, carry you away as prey. And again, that we sit in these kind of external pressures of conversations like here are, the, here are these well-formed arguments about who Jesus is. And ultimately, we've talked about these persuasive arguments when they're, when they're based upon a falsehood to begin with. Regardless of how convincing the argument may be, it's still leading you to a lie and a falsehood at the conclusion of that argument. And Paul is warning them that here's these individuals that they're coming in ultimately to make disciples of themselves, feeding you lies, feeding you worldly philosophies that have nothing to do with the nature and character of God, but they're of man. And don't let these people take you away from Jesus. And then last week we sat in the shadows, which is more like um, you learned about life from your household. Your mom and dad are ultimately the source of what, you know, your foundational principles of life. Your mom and dad communicated things to you about Jesus, about God, about religion. A lot of those things that we communicate as parents, it's, it's easy to communicate tradition. Well, this is the way that it's always been done, so this is the way that we're going to do it. But once you start reading the word of God for yourself, often we have to undo some traditions, right, that have nothing to do with the Lord. It's man's commandments. They're, they're communicating to it. And again, I'm not saying that this is what every single parent does, but what we're being warned against, one, is we communicate. Two, is we listen to others, is not to communicate man stuff, to, but to make sure we're talking about our Lord that has created us, that has saved us, that is at the right hand of the Father right now, that is coming back, that what we communicate is truth and that we're not telling people to have a relationship with some self-righteous behavior. And I talked about last week, it's like my son's coming up to me and just talking to my shadow and trying to have a relationship with my shadow rather than having a relationship with me. So Paul's already addressed these external things. And now as he gets a lot more practical in our lives, he's going to start talking about internal things. And we all have to be able to kind of like remove our beating hearts out of our chest to, to understand uh, what it is that Paul is communicating. So Jesus clearly taught that it's, it's out, of, out of our hearts out of our hearts, out of the, those things that we're meditating on, out of those things that we're thinking about, that's, that's what comes out of our mouth and speech. And it's what influences our behaviors, right? Those things that we're meditating on. As we talk about the heart, this is really a, a, like a matters of the heart this morning. Um, have any of you ever felt an emotional pain in your life where your heart actually ached? Have any of you felt, we use this term like you, you, uh, you have this experience in life and we say, I felt like I just got punched in the gut, right? These emotions in our bowels and the core of who we are. And ultimately, this is, this is the, our, our inner self, the core of who we are, what we think about, what we think about God, what we think about ourselves, what we think about other people. This is where Paul is getting down into this nitty-gritty encouragement and exhortation, warnings, help for believers that he's writing to, right? This is the message that Paul, as he is writing this letter, as the Holy Spirit is influencing the words that he's pinning down, this isn't a message that he communicates out in the marketplace. This is a message that he's communicating. You know God. 
you have a faith and a belief and understanding in who God is and what it is that he's done for you and who he is in you today and his promises of transforming you, the hope that he's given you for the future. Again, now it's getting really practical. So, believer, act like it. And when I say that, I'm talking to myself just as much as I'm talking to you, just as much as Paul is talking to the Colossians, he's talking to himself in these words also. But let's pick up his... His exhortation is encouragement here in chapter 3. If then, since then you were raised with Christ. There's a whole bunch of commands in this section that we're going to go through. And this word for seek, this is an imperative. This is a command that Paul is giving. Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So get back to his argument. Everything that he's already said, elevating Jesus in our minds and our hearts and our lives. Since then, you know that you were dead apart from Jesus. You know that you have been resurrected with him. He has given you a new life. You have been born again from above. You were born of the spirit. You know that you have been raised with him. You know that the day that you die is the day that you see your God face to face. Amen? Since you know that, what ought you be trying to find? And that's what this word seeks. What are, what are, you, what are you looking for? Think of, our, think of our, uh, our kid game of playing hide and seek. So everybody goes and hides, and what's the seeker supposed to do? Go and find. That's, that's this idea. Are you seeking after God? Are you finding him in your, in your personal relationship? Are you looking for him? Are you looking for him in your daily activities? Are you looking for him in your marriage, in your parenting, in your brother and sister relationship here? Are you looking for him when you're feeling persecuted? Are you looking for him when you just got the bad news? Are you looking for him when you just got the good news? What are you seeking in life? And what was Jesus' promise? Keep on knocking. Keep on seeking. If you seek God, what are you going to find? The devil? No. If you seek God, you will find God. A promise that you can give to any human being. If you are honestly, in humility, seeking truth, seeking God, you will find him because he will manifest himself to you through the Son. Seek. Just like that game, hide and seek actively engage in your relationship with God. Look for him. And what does it say? Those things that are above. And this word for above, it's literally upward. Keep your head up. This is a kind of a foundational thing for just a, uh, what the Lord spoke to Julie and myself as, as he brought us here. This is our little triangles that we have on our logo. That first one, upward. We are first, our attention and everything that we do, we have an upward focus on God. Always him. He's the foundation, he's our direction, he's our vision. As we move ahead, as we go onward, it's always upward first. Blake, set your mind, your heart, your life. Seek him who is above, because where? Where is Jesus? 
He is seated at the right hand of his father. Again, this position of authority, all the imagery that we have of the right hand. We also have the promise that Jesus is right here in our midst together corporately. We have the promise that Father, Son, Holy Spirit have taken up residence within us. He dwells with us, right? Seek him and him alone. And all of these matters of the heart. Set your mind it's, 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 it's focusing in, in concentration, but it's, it comes with this idea of have an opinion. The circumstances that you're going through in life right now, do you have an opinion on those circumstances that's based upon the truth of God? As you are asking the question why and you need to reason and you need to move forward in a circumstance, do you have a biblical opinion from the Holy Spirit speaking to you on your on that matter does that make sense and that's what this whole idea is set your mind concentrate let god form your opinions on whatever the circumstance may be on things again upward not on things on this earth because again the things that we interact with on a daily basis whether it's cultural whether it's in your family just matters of your own heart we need to have the truth. We need to have our God define for us what is truth. We're going to sing a song in a minute, Lord. Here's my heart. Speak to me what is true. Do you believe that he's going to speak truth to you? Again, this is, this is where if, if you trust God that he is who he says he is, then you know that as you petition him and that you ask questions of him, he's going to speak his truth into your life that he's not going to lie to you. And the conclusion, the, the, the reality, for you died. Your life, your life is concealed with Christ in God. And there's coming a day, day when Jesus, our life, he is going to appear. He is going to make himself visible. And when that day comes... You're going to be made visible with him in glory. What a promise. So there's another argument I told you before where these cycles where he continues to turn our attention back to who Jesus is, who we are in him, and then leading into our behaviors and things that he wants to teach and, and pay attention to. So therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Paul himself, son of disobedience, once upon a time. Listen to the, the radical... And again, Paul is teaching what Jesus taught. Jesus in the, par in the Sermon on the Mount told us to seek first the kingdom of heaven, right? Paul's saying the exact same thing in a different way. Seek Jesus first. Keep your eyes up and above. And the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gave us a pretty radical teaching that if your right hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off. What does cut it off mean? Kill it. If your right eye causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Pluck it out. It's pretty powerful imagery, right? 
So he's not saying that this is the reality of you're supposed to maim your body because Paul already addressed that above. Here's all these, here's all these man stuff that's taught that if you beat your flesh, you're going to beat sin out of you. It doesn't do anything for the indulgence of the flesh. So what's being communicated, though, is the radical thought, behaviors, and actions that we need associated with sin in our lives. Cut it off. Kill it. Execute it. Now, do we all struggle in that. I want that part of me to be dead. I kind of just don't like that part of me. You know, this is the offering yourself as a living sacrifice. As we are dead in Christ, we are alive in him. Our lives are laid down at his feet. Our lives are supposed to be a sweet-smelling aroma to God. We find ourselves as a living sacrifice, so we crawl off of that altar. But here's the, just the radical, again, the, the teaching and what Paul is communicating to the Colossians. It's just, again, you know who you are in Christ, and the old guy needs to die. And he goes through these, again, these, these conditions of the heart. So every single one of these, um, they can be synonyms for one another. A lot of it is related to sexual behavior. So when he talks about fornication, this is any unlawful act, and it's under the umbrella. Everything is included in it in regards to sexual behavior that is unlawful. So Jesus deals, again, with the heart of the matter. He says, you know, the behavior, the outward behavior that we're all offended by really begins in our hearts, right? So Jesus is continually dealing with our hearts. And then at the same time, you can apply this just into, uh, into relationships. So God continually uses sexual imagery to convey, especially when it comes to adultery and prostitution, all those kind of images he uses to convey uh, the offense and the affront that he has when we pursue other relationships outside of him. It's just like a spouse committing adultery. So every single one of these, we can look at our hearts, we can look at our outward behaviors, and then we can look at our relationship with the Lord. But this is something that is to be cut off in our life, anything that God, not our culture, defines as unlawful. He uses the word unclean. So when we think about things that are filthy, things that are dirty, the word for passion so passion and desire, they're very similar in the Greek. So what's the difference? Um, you've heard of the passion of the Christ, right? The passion of Jesus. Why is it defined as his passion? His passion is his suffering. So when you look at Jesus suffering on the, on the cross for the sins of human being, it's identified as his passion. It's the same word. There is something in your heart and in your behavior that is causing suffering in your life that needs to be cut off. Your passion for it, your strong desire for it is bringing about suffering in your life. And again, you can sit in, you can sit in all kinds of behavior, alcoholism. I mean, just go sit in gambling. Um, you know, anything that you, here you have this unhealthy, unlawful, strong, passionate desire in your life and you keep doing it and what's its effect upon you? And those around you, suffering. Those are the behaviors, the thoughts, the hearts that needs to be dealt with and cut off and executed. Evil desire, again, this is just an evil craving and covetousness. It's, it's this greedy desire for more. 
whether it's money, whether it's sexual behavior, whether it's food, do you not find within your own flesh, give me more, right? There's, there's always more. I have terrible self-control when it comes to food. I can't eat just one little Hershey's Kiss. I need a handful of Hershey's Kisses, and then I'm going to go throw those wrappers away, and I'm going to go get another handful because I like it. This greed for more, right? And this is dealing with all of our hearts. We all, we all, we want more love. We want more affection. We want more attention. We want more money. We want more respect. We want more. And again, what is what does the Word of God communicate to us from Genesis to Revelation? God is sufficient. He is enough. In our relationships with Him, when He deals with our our hearts. He brings about great contentment in our lives. I have enough. I have more than enough. I have an abundance. And he deals with that desire which is linked to idolatry here, this desire for more. It's, it's pursuing life outside of the life. Because of these things, this, this brief list, and again, they're all, they can all, these are all conditions of the heart. Because of these things, the wrath of God, the punishment of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. In uh, Ephesians, Paul uses every single human being, apart from a, G, a relationship with Jesus Christ, is a child of wrath. In Ephesians, here is a son of of disobedience. And the word disobedience, it's this idea of disbelief. God, I don't believe what you say, therefore I'm going to do it my way. This is what Adam and Eve did in the garden, right? Don't eat that. They believe the lie. I don't believe you, God. Disobedience, the sin of disobedience. Every single person is a child, a son of disobedience apart from Christ. We all were. However, Boy, we don't live there any longer. You, but now, verse 8, now you yourselves. The responsibility is on you. Mommy's not going to do this for you. Daddy's not going to do this for you. Your spouse is not going to do this for you. Your employer's not going to do this for you. Your pastor's not going to do this for you. Now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jews, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ the all and in all. Amen. All right, child of God. All right, disciple of Jesus. Do you love him? You yourself. The imagery that's being given to us, again, he's, he's using body imagery throughout this whole letter, is you need to take these clothes off. Here, here is what you need to remove from yourself, lay it aside, put it in the bag, and go take it to the goodwill. You have the imagery? Like, that old man is out of style. It's time for you to be clothed in Jesus Christ. 
So here, again, all these words, these are where earlier he's dealing with, uh, you know, fornication and uncleanness and, and passions and desires. These are like matters of the heart. And now all of these words he's dealing with, these are really matters of the mouth. Because what does he say? Anger. Oh, boy. Has anybody ever said something in the heat of wrath that you wish you could get back? Have you ever had words just explode out of your mouth that you know were absolutely sourced by the old man and the old clothes and not by Jesus Christ? And again, here, you, yourself, are there things that just blight your fuse? Absolutely. What are we supposed to do with those emotions? Above. Keep your eyes above. Seek him in that circumstances. Um, there are real justifications for anger, for wrath in our lives. But I just, there's a, there's a verse in the Old Testament that's talking about, I believe it's talking about Moses. I actually looked this up a month ago because I quote it all the time and now I forgot where it was. Uh, but it's the anger of, the anger of, the wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. Me being mad at you and me expressing my anger towards you is not going to bring about God's righteousness in your life. Your faith in who God is brings about God's righteousness in your life. And I need his righteousness as I communicate to you things in your life that bug me, that make me mad. Put off anger. Has no place in our life. Anger is the same word for where it says the wrath of God, just in the sentence above. The word anger here, it's the exact same word. Wrath, it's this idea of temperature, it's fury. Uh, the idea of malice is you have uh, an evil habit of the mind where um, it's, it's what you sink into just by your natural flesh. You know, that rut that you have in your mind, your personality, your behavior, things that you've learned in the past, rather than thinking, you just sink down into the rut and you just stick with the status quo and how you've already responded to whatever that stimulus was historically. And how's that worked out for you? Not very well. So again, here's the idea, putting off that evil habit of the mind. Blasphemy is words that escape our mouth that defame another, whether we are defaming God or defaming another human being. Filthy language is uh, obscenities. So, again, different cultures are going to have different definitions for what they consider to be obscene. So we don't have, we can go into our culture and we all know what the dirty word list is. And again, God is communicating to us, don't let the dirty words escape out of your mouth. Why? What are they communicating? It's communicating lack of thought. It's communicating a baseness. It's communicating offense. You're not going to sit here and listen to me if I have the F word coming out of my mouth every other sentence as I'm talking about Jesus, right? The sanctuary would be empty very quickly. So, Blake, if you're not going to use those words before your brothers and sisters as you're teaching the word of God, where are you going to use those words for as a stick hits you in the forehead? And no, I didn't drop an F-bomb when the stick hit me in the head yesterday. I did pretty good. Well, let me tell you a quick story. 
I hate auto mechanics. I am terrible with auto mechanics. I was putting a new starter on Julie's van in Salt Lake City, Utah. I couldn't get the starter with the gasket to get to the engine block. I could get the starter on just fine without the, without the little uh, gasket. I was under that car for hours and I let off a string of F-bombs because it was a pressure release. As a believer, yes. Did Jesus forgive me? Man, he's done a major work in my life. I hope today if I crawled underneath a car and I was sitting in that kind of frustration that that old man would not escape out of my mouth again because he has transformed me over time. I don't need to let the expletive loose. Put off filthy language out of your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Why not? Why don't we, why, why don't, why can't we tell lies to one another? Lies strip away trust, strips away community, damages relationship. The truth is going to come out at some point. It's like being stabbed when somebody has lied to you or about you rather than just having honesty in whatever that conversation looks like. But lying is what breaks a relationship down. And when we base a relationship in truth in him and as we interact with one another, allowing the truth to lead us forward, you know, because again, we all have offensive behaviors, so don't hide, don't lie, don't pretend to be somebody in public who you're absolutely different behind closed doors. Things that you would never say to another human being publicly, why would you say those things that way to your spouse or to your children? Why is it that our flesh comes out when we think nobody else is looking and does everybody know what I'm talking about, or am I the only one that's guilty of these things, right? The Lord deals with our flesh. Don't lie. It only violates trust. It only breaks community, whatever that community looks like. Don't lie to another one, one another. Why? Because you put off. You've did this word for put off. It's the same word for where Jesus disarmed the principalities in the last chapter. There's, there's a stripping away. The old man has been stripped off of you, and not only uh, that, that imagery of clothing, but his activities, his deeds. We don't do the things that we used to do. Why? Because we have now put on the new who is renewed. There is a process of renewal and restoration in our life, in knowledge, according to the image of him who created me, Right? So we are growing in our knowledge and our understanding and our experience of Jesus. That's what Paul expressed earlier in his prayers, that we'd all grow and mature in our knowledge of him, that we mature into that image of him. What would Jesus say if he hit his thumb with a hammer? It's neither Jew nor Greek. In, a, in um, Galatians chapter 2, he adds there's, adds there's neither male nor female, but really the focus is there's not all these outward distinctions in the body of Christ. We have all been made one. So the distinction between Greek and Jew had a cultural um, implication. What a barbarian was, somebody who didn't speak Greek or Latin in the culture. The Scythian, they were like the worst of the worst, the 
uh, you know, the, the Cretans or whatever. The, these were the most uncivilized savages is the word. All of these individuals are now part of the body of Christ. So now that we're in the body of Christ, yeah, we have a lot of distinctions. As we talk about being members with one another, different body parts do different things. We, we celebrate the diversity in the body of Christ, and he places us in the body where each one of us belong. However, we always need to keep before us, we're all one in him. The distinctions and the labels that we place upon things, they may be, uh, they have its application in, in, in real life, but in this subject matters, we're talking about our behaviors and interactions as brothers and sisters. We are one, why? Because Jesus Christ is, and again, it is, he is the, the definite article, he is the all. He is our focus. He is what matters. It is all about Jesus. He is the all. He is the source. He is the image. And he is what? In all. Each and every one of us is believers. It's all about Jesus. Therefore, as the elect of God, this had very real implications Abraham was the elect of God, the chosen of God, and his descendants. And now Paul is applying the same term to Gentiles. Any believer, Jew or Gentile, in Christ, this is why he is in prison, because he's proclaiming that Gentiles are also the elect of God. Therefore, as the elect of God, you are holy, you are dedicated to God, and you are beloved, you are loved by God. Put on. So those clothes that we take off, Here's the new style. Put on Jesus, ultimately, because these are all words of Jesus. Put on compassion, which that's the word for tender mercies. Put on kindness. Idea is being upright. Put on humility, meekness, long-suffering, and patience. Are those all attributes of Jesus? We just sat in the Gospel of Luke. We were dealing with um, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan on Wednesday night. And Jesus, the, this, this guy's asking Jesus, testing Jesus. Um, but he asks this question, you know, who is my neighbor? And Jesus is telling us in our relationship with our neighbors, it's to be motivated by this attitude of having compassion. And you look at Jesus in the Gospels. He was a compassionate man. You know, he engaged the least of the least. He touched the leper. He touched the whore. He loved the, the wayward religious leaders. Everybody that allowed him to influence their lives, he did with this foundation, um, foundational attribute of, of compassion, his tender mercies. What a... What, what awesome words. So a lot of these too, these are not only conditions of the heart, but again, they're also the words that come out of our mouth. Lord, help me to be compassionate as I think. Help me to be compassionate as I speak. And again, the rest of them too. Bearing with one another. You know what that means? Tolerance. Again, this doesn't mean that we tolerate sin. He already dealt with sin before. 
All these unlawful behaviors, put them off, execute them, cut them off, let them, ha- let them not be mentioned among you, let it have nothing to do with the condition of your heart. Those things that God says is unlawful, cut it off. Now, brothers and sisters, as you are processing through life together, do you have to tolerate, demonstrate any kind of tolerance with my personality? I guarantee I rub some of you wrong sometimes, if not all the time. Where I well, Blake's just kind of a wingnut. That's how God wired him. Bless his heart, right? But it's but it's serious. We bear with one another in our life, in our context, in our personalities. We support each other. We encourage each other. We love each other. And this is this idea of you know supporting each other, tolerating each other, not tolerating sin again, but our distinctions, our our differences. Um, how we view the same circumstance, listen to one another, tolerate each other. And oh boy, forgiving one another. Have you ever been stabbed by a Christian? Have you ever felt cut? Words, behaviors, you're a Christian and that's what you just did to me? Has anybody ever needed to demonstrate the forgiveness of Jesus Christ towards another brother and sister in Jesus? Yes? I see a raise of hands. Some of that process of forgiveness, uh, the wound can be tremendous. Like the knife went in deep, and not only did it go in deep, When the knife went in, it also cut to the side. Some things that we do to one another as siblings in Jesus can cause really vicious wounds. And we're not told in that forgiveness process that we continue to subject ourselves to repetitious stabbing, right? Like this is, I mean, there's a reciprocal relationship here that when a brother and sister has wounded me, it is on them and it is on me to seek reconciliation in Jesus Christ. Behaviors need to be corrected. Attitudes need to be corrected. Conversations need to be had. Often that's not easy. And usually it takes a long time. You know, I've been, I've been hurt by individuals where it took me a long time of prayer, continuing to roll that emotion back to God. I want to beat him up in my head. This feels really good to punch him in the face in my fantasy life, Lord, but I know that that's wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm rolling this back to you. And I've had that. I've had that miraculous, radical transformation in my own mind, in my own heart, in my attitudes towards people who have hurt me, where it took time. Whereas I think about those individuals now, I have, I have zero. Um, all those old emotions, they're They're gone. Because he is the one who has renewed me. So forgiveness, again, it's now you sit in your relationship with Jesus. And what is it that you have done to throw the spears and the arrows and try and slash at God through your behavior as you've attempted to wound him, as you did wound him with your sins, as he is on the cross dying for those sins? Did he forgive you of much? Again, this is where we sit in prayer with him. Lord, I can't believe that you created me knowing the things that I do. I can't believe that you loved me, you pursued me, 
not only after I did things, but while I was doing things, and before I was going to do those future things. Your love for me is abundant and it's amazing. I praise you for your grace. You have given me your life that I don't deserve. I have so much gratitude for your compassion and your mercy, Lord. So many times you had the right to execute me. You were patient and you pursued me and you encouraged me and you loved me and you're changing me. Thank you, Lord. Now you take that heart and you apply it to others. Because the person that you're screaming at in your mind that you don't want to forgive, has Jesus already forgiven their sin? Maybe they've dealt with it with the Lord. Maybe they haven't. Is the Lord taking it through a process? Hopefully he is. Again, we're talking about relationships with brothers and sisters here. That none of us ought to have our heads buried in the sand in regards to our own hearts, mouths, and behavior. That if we've set our mind on him above and we're seeking him, we're doing that together in relationship, right? The encouragement is for all of us so that when the storm happens, that we'll forgive each other. And again, a lot of the forgiveness that we need to demonstrate to others, we have a legitimate complaint. We have a legitimate blame against them. But as Christ forgave you, so you also, all right, Lord. And here's the, here's the uh, main drive of this, of this section, is verse 14. Above all these things, put on love. And here's the Greek. And upon all these things love so we're told to put on right all these attributes of jesus christ and the imagery that's given is that's being given to us is that outer garment that cloak that last layer of clothing that's upon all the rest love it is called here the bond of perfection and the word for bond here is not being bound in a rope. It's the idea of our connective tissues. So we have tendons and ligaments that connect our body parts together, right? So the imagery of the body that Paul has given is in our, how we are linked to one another in Jesus Christ, independently in the same body in unity, let that ligament be love. Let our connection, our support of one another, let it be this bond of love, which is the bond of perfection. Let the peace of God rule your hearts. This idea of rules to have control and let God's peace make the decisions of your life. Right? We can't make decisions in the agitation of our flesh, but let's this, this perfect absence of conflict which comes from God, let that rule your hearts to which you've been called into one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ, whether that's the gospel, whether that's his teachings, whether it's the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, let the word of Christ dwell in you, be alive in you richly in all wealth and in all wisdom, 
teaching you, admonishing, instructing, warning, listen to this, one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, spiritual odes, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So when we worship, the songs that we sang earlier and the songs that we sing uh, congregationally are every single one of the lyrics directed towards God, yes or no? Should they be? I hear, I hear that complaint all the time, you know. That, that song didn't say anything about the Lord. It's not directed to the Lord. It's, it's all talking to other people but not talking to God. That's not a worship song. You ever heard that before? Go sit in the Psalms. There's a lot of me in the Psalms. There's a lot of you in the Psalms. There's a lot of I in the Psalms. Because again, we're in relationship with God. Here, it's these, every single, whether it's a psalm, whether it's a hymn or an ode, and I have no idea how you distinguish between any of these. It's all, they're all synonyms for each other. But we're singing to one another. We are teaching and admonishing each other even as we are singing to God. Because what does it say? You're singing to the Lord. We're in relationship with him. It's directed to him. But at the same time, as we are communicating to God, we're also communicating to one another. As you were sitting there praying to God publicly and you were speaking to God directly publicly, you're also speaking to your brothers and sisters as you're having that conversation. We're listening. We're being taught. We're being instructed. And again, it's where does the song come from? It comes from this position of he's changed my heart, he's changed my mouth, he's changed my life. He's created this joy that's within me that I really do, I want to sing, and I can't sing, and you don't want me to sing to you, but I'm going to sing in the back of the room. And as I'm singing to the Lord, we sing these songs over one another. And a lot of the lyrics, yes, they are directed to the absolute worship and glorification of God. And at the same time, a lot of those lyrics are reminding us about who he is and what he's done and who we are in him. Singing to the Lord and to one another. And whatever you do, whatever you're making in your life, whatever the product of your, your actions in life, whether it's words that are coming out of your mouth or those actions, all of it, let it be in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father, we give you just great thanks for the constant just encouragement that we have through your word. Lord, I sit with Paul as, as a brother in Jesus. I also sit with him in that recognition, Lord, that he's, he's somebody that you specially called and specially equipped. I sit in the, the, the words of this letter that he wrote to people 2,000 years ago. I wasn't in his mind and I wasn't in his heart. But we... We're in your mind and heart as these words are penned down. We see you. We're, we're exposed to you, Lord. We see all those things. and Lord, I look at my own heart, and I say to you, Lord, like, here's, my, here's my heart, Lord. I want you to take it. I want it to be, I want it to be new and renewed according to your promise and the new covenant that you give to all of us a new heart. 
Lord, renew this heart. Make make the condition of this heart a fertile place for your word. That as you are working in each one of us, that you bring about your fruit in the right time, Lord, in its season. Lord, those areas of my heart where I still have locked away from you, so to say, where I haven't cut things off. Speak to each one of us, Lord. Show us where that execution needs to occur within each one of our hearts. Where we need to die, Lord. Where we need to let go. Where we need to turn away. Where we, Lord, in in our behavior, we need to intentionally strip these things off of ourselves, trusting that you are the one who is going to rebuild us according to your image. Lord, I confess to you, I want your compassion. I want your, your uprightness, Lord. I want your humility and your meekness. I want your patience. As you have walked alongside of me, Lord, allow us to walk alongside of each other. As you've forgiven me, Lord, let me forgive all. You were all that matters. And you are in we, each one of us. Thank you for that knowledge, Lord. Thank you for that truth and that reality. Now let us live it. So here's our hearts, Lord. Speak what's true. Amen.